Creative Zombie Studios presents the Subjective Comedy Podcast with Brad Scott. Brad Scott is a mediocre comedian from Indianapolis. This is his show. If you don't think it's funny, remember, comedy is subjective. Alright, we are in location 13, and this is probably where we should have started. No, because there was no outlet, so you can recharge. Oh, that's true. It is very peaceful, uh, with the exception of that duck or frog or whatever that's just been goose, goose that's been annoying. Um, but we're in a park. Uh, there's two gazebos, but no seating in the gazebo, so we are here at the benches. And we just got through, I believe you had shot yourself, you moved back home. I went trick-or-treating. Went trick-or-treating. Now this is where things are good mm-hmm. with you and your husband. Yes. What happens next? Um, the house fire. The house fire. Okay. We had the apartment fire. And after the apartment fire, where did you guys? Yo, slept in the car. You slept in the car. Again. Again. And uh, this time we also had friends who were, you know, letting us crash on the couch, crash in a spare room, um, for a little bit until. It finally just came to a head, and I broke down and called my mom. And she had swore that I couldn't come back, but she let us come back. We weren't even back a week before Josh, and she straight up told us, no fights, no gimmicks, no nothing. And she, uh, we weren't even back a week and um, woke up, or mom was in the hospital, I believe. And For my, what? Uh, probably pneumonia. She gets it multiple times a year. Um, but, uh, like, uh, I remember my dad was in the living room. My son was in, I'm not, I think he was in the kitchen. Josh and I were outside and it can't turn into a big fight. And in the process of us screaming at each other, both my dad and my son heard Josh, and they never believed me up to this point. They had heard us fighting, and in the process of fighting, um, they heard him admit to putting his hands on me once. How did he put his hands on you? Um, he'd put me in a chokehold. I don't remember the circumstance behind it or what exactly happened. I don't even really remember it, but he admitted to it. And they had never believed that he had put his hands on me prior to that. Why didn't they believe? Because everyone thought Josh was the best person in the world, that he was an angel, and that I'm the screw-up. And so even my own family turned on me. And how many times had he put his hands on you? Was that the only time? That's the only time he had put his hands on me. And so what happens after that fight? My parents kicked him out. And you stayed? I stayed with my parents. And what year is this at? This is 2017? Um, this, or still 2016? This is 2017. Okay. This is summer, late summer of 2017. And how long did you stay with your parents? Um, until Veterans Day. Okay. And what happened Veterans Day? Veterans Day. Josh had just gotten a new house in Indianapolis. And um, I had taking some of his stuff over there and this his house was just in complete and utter disarray 
And the whole reason he was moving there is because the actual owner was renting it to him, um, but they worked at Amazon together. And they had agreed that Josh would move in and help get the place put together. Like, they had, we had to do all new flooring, the walls, cabinet. Like, so you went back? So I went back. I originally had gone to drop him off stuff and to help him. Like, I stayed to help him clean. And he was like, oh, you can stay if you want. And I was like, no, I'm going home. I left. I got around the block, went around the block, came back, and I stayed. What made you stay? I like the freedom of being away from my parents and having my own home to run. I don't like having to fall under their rules. I like, again, to have my own household. I'm an adult. I'm a mother. I like to have my own household. I like to make the rules for my child, you know? I don't like to have someone over my shoulder dictating what I can and can't do. You know, I'm 30 years old. Leave me alone. And so um, the fact so that- So you were more house, attracted to the situation always, than, than him? Always. And so how long did you stay at this house? We stayed at this house. Oh, it was a hard winter because we didn't have electricity or running water most of the winter. Why not? Uh, there was something wrong with the electricity. And in a 30-day time period, apparently we used enough electricity that our bill was $1,300. There's no way. This was a small two-bedroom, one-story house that didn't even have central heating. We used baseboards. And we only used the baseboards into the rooms of which we were in at the time. Lights didn't get left on. Nothing got left on. There's no way we racked up that much. But we couldn't afford the bill. So it got turned off. Water got turned off. And we actually broke a water line a couple times. And so um, come, uh, what was it, March, uh, he, the landlord tried to evict March us. March 2018. Yes, 2018. Um, the landlord tried to evict us. We went to court. We brought all of the stuff up in front of the judge, and the judge let us off. He said we didn't have to fulfill the contract. We didn't have to pay anything. He called him a slumlord and because, like, I literally had fallen through 12-foot vaulted ceilings. Hold on. Um, I had fallen through a 12-foot vaulted ceiling because it was raining, and we had a massive leak. We had a waterfall coming down a wall and oh through God. our ceiling. So I had gone up into the attic and this these leaks have been going on for so long that it dry rotted even the beams up there. And as I took a step onto the beam, I stepped into some rotten area and the beam snapped and I fell through the ceiling. And the landlord tried to get on me because, well, I shouldn't have been up there. Well, we called you 22 times in a 24-hour period trying to tell you that we had a massive waterfall in our house. Not to mention we had four feet of water in the basement where our electrical box was. And he never wants to return the phone calls. So we had no choice but to do something. And I was injured. Anyways, the judge called him a slumlord, let us off the hook. We moved into the Skyline Motel in Indianapolis for a little bit. Sounds fancy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were, were there about a month, and I called my best friend out here in Greenfield. She owns her own home, and her detached garage has a studio apartment in it. And I called her and begged her to move in. She said yes, we'd have to clean it up. We moved back here to Greenfield. And May 
of 2018, I had gone on, at this point, the VA has stopped giving me my pain meds. Okay, oh, yeah, because I was getting ready to say, how are you handling the pain meds with the all The VA had actually stopped giving me pain meds uh, shortly after I sh- shot myself. Um, because of the opiate epidemic, they just, even though I had never missed a pill count when they just randomly call you in for a pill count, all of my pills were right. I had never had a dirty drug test, not even marijuana. Nothing that was in my system that wasn't supposed to be in my system. But they, I went in for my 90-day refill, and um, they said, we're not going to be able to fill it. No gradually coming down, no nothing. Just cold turkey after being on large doses of pain meds for years. Which So on a much smaller scale, about five years ago, I was in a car accident. And to this day, my back's not great. Um, but at that point in time, it was pretty bad where doing any sort of physical activity longer than five minutes was, was we get me to a point where I, you know, those, that sharp pain and it mm-hmm. feels like you're just stiff as a board, but you're standing and you can't move. And so I was prescribed and put on three Norcos a day and about a year and a half of doing that, I realized I was becoming dependent on them and I didn't want to be dependent on them. And I did a detox myself of cold turkey like you and that same weekend there's a a blind guy named Patrick hi Patrick I hope you're listening because I know you can't see it Uh, he uh, I told him I would take him to see Jaws which I know sounds strange but he can kind of make out objects on a big screen right so um, and I don't even know if you know this Patrick but I took him to see Jaws and I pretty much was like in the middle of detoxing and so I'm sitting in a theater watching Jaws with a blind guy just <sighs> you know yeah, the, the, the yeah. hot and you're yeah. and you just can't get comfortable and everything else. No matter else. what position you're in you cannot get relief from the, mus- from the muscle tightness especially in your back and then it goes down into your legs and then you get restless leg syndrome and, and your head plays games with each yes. other. And I and, that, and again this is a much smaller scale. I was scale. like, you were on three Norco a day. I was on morphine, fentanyl, yeah. Roxy's, so, and Oxy's. So <laughs> daily. Tell me about the darkest point of detoxing uh, cold turkey. You're- I was attempting to. And that's when I got in trouble and I started buying pills off the street. But they became more expensive, harder to come by. And so the medic. Does Josh me, know? Yes. The medic in me rationalizes heroin and morphine are the same thing. If I only use this amount to get out of pain and never actually use to get high, then... You're not doing anything wrong. Exactly. You're not a junkie. You're, a, you're like a, a home... You're like a holistic healer. Exactly. So um, I started buying heroin. And Which is weird because, okay, so there's the opioid epidemic, but yeah, you're right. Heroin is a much cheaper option much than cheaper, the pills would be. By. And so it's almost as if our government is pushing people Well, that's why we're heroin. having such a huge epidemic of overdoses. And people Ex- passing out in their cars at stoplights. Especially right now because a lot of the heroin is mixed with fentanyl. And fentanyl is deadly if you don't know what the heck you're doing. You know, just what a is little, fentanyl, by the way? Fentanyl is a um, is a extremely strong narcotic. 
It's stronger than morphine, but it has half the shelf life as morphine. Morphine lasts four to six hours, whereas fentanyl only lasts two to four. And so it's out of your system a lot faster, which when you're doing it on the streets and the concentration is more pure than what you would get in the hospital, yeah. people over like in the hospital, you can 100 milligrams of fentanyl at once is nothing. You do 100 fentanyl. 100 milligrams of fentanyl from the streets and you're going to die. There is no Narcan is going to bring you back from that. But the problem is you have all these people who are overdosing and they're coming back just fine because of Narcan and so they go out and they do it again. You know, and they don't look at it as a new lease on life. Yeah, they don't they don't they, they don't get what they just did. And they just keep going at it and going at it and like I've watch so many people overdose, especially on the fentanyl. Um, unfortunately, we've had police officers who do traffic stops and just get a little bit of fentanyl on their hands and they overdose. And so the fentanyl epidemic is getting pushed to extremes right now because of how deadly it is. And then they're mixing it with everyday drug. So you're doing heroin? Yes. How much heroin were you doing? I could get by with um, a 20, which is, depending on where you go, it's either a point or two points. Uh, very, very, very small amount. Um, when you say a point, what do you mean? Um, like if you get uh, one of the scales and you have 0 0.1, 0 0.2, a mm -hmm. uh, point, usually, depending on where you go, you can get um, a point for $10. So $20 a day. Which is again a very, very, very small amount. How long in the was the grand scheme of How long was the high? See, that was the thing is I did not use to get high. Very, very, very rarely in the beginning did I ever actually get high. I only used to get out of pain and to function. How long the was the pain relief? I could push it for anywhere from six to eight hours. Okay. So, yeah, you only need two. Yeah, I was, and I usually, what I do is I'd wake up in the morning, do a small shot, and um, be fine until bedtime, do another small shot. And I was trying to push it, you know, every 12 hours. You're <laughs> just a very responsible, moderate heroin <laughs> user. <laughs> I tried. And so... And then things got out of control, and one day, without me knowing, someone introduced me to meth. It was mixed in with my shot. And um, I had never done meth before. I have never done meth since. But I went like on a five-day meth binge, apparently. I don't remember any of it. I totaled a couple vehicles during this time. And how did you how did you find out about all this? Uh, I, this is just from and we're, different friends, family members, and my husband recounting. And so were you still living with Josh at this point? I was still living with Josh at this point. And what's now, he doing while you're on this meth bed? He was at work, but he had, oh goodness, he had, he was trying to restrain me from hurting myself or somebody else because I was trying to leave and get another vehicle. He should have known how that went the first time. He wrapped me up into a big bear hug. Well, apparently I started fighting and I broke my nose. One thing led to another and he was facing five different counts of domestic violence. They were all just recently dropped because I finally told the truth about, you know, being on the meth binge and, you know, he was just trying to protect 
me. He was trying to protect everyone else. I fought back. He could have handled it a different way, yes, but in the grand scheme of things, I wasn't going to let an innocent man rot in jail. So, uh, luckily, charges were finally just dropped. Um, and then, but during all of this, he had gotten kicked out of my place. Uh, he had gotten kicked out of the studio apartment. Why? And Because of the charges. She has three kids. Mm. And my son was there. And uh, it just, with him having five different domestic charges, he couldn't stay there. So, he went to the Hope House here in Greenfield, which is a homeless shelter um, and um, drug transitional place. He ended up getting kicked out of there because he can't have felonies and he was pending five felonies. So he ended up moving to the hotel up by the interstate. And he lived in the hotel until he got the house that he's currently in. But we were separated. So wait, wait, is he still working at Amazon at this time? No, he uh, is working um, at a restaurant here in town. He's okay. actually a manager now at that same restaurant here in town. Okay, and so that's yeah. Okay, so he has a new house. He has a new house, <laughs> and um, I go over there one night, and he says you can't move back in. But you well, hold on. Now, this is a, how long is this after the meth binge? Because well, like when when you get done with the meth binge, where do you go? Um, I stayed in that apartment that he had my, left. Okay, that he had left. I and how there. long did you stay there? I stayed there until I moved in with him in his new house. And when was this? Uh, he moved in his new house um, uh, September or October last year. Okay. And I moved in with him. Um, but we had to keep it. We, every single time we get back together, we keep, always keep it secret for the first couple of months because we know how our family is going to react. We know how everyone, what everyone's going to say. So we always keep it a secret. And so I moved back in with him. Nobody knew, yada, yada, yada. We were together. Finally, everyone figured it out. And um, I don't know, we were doing great. And then he kicked me. I was at work one day, and I came home, and he had kicked me Where were you me working? Out. I was working at the same restaurant he's a manager at. Okay. I don't want to give that information out. No, 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 of course not. Um, but he kicked me out. He said my drug habit had gotten out of control. And... What what at this point? What's the drug habit? At that point, I was still using the same very small amount of heroin a day, solely just to get out of pain. Not you know, to get high. I swear, I, I swear, I think anyone else that's a heroin user that says that you just go bullshit. You're make you're trying to you're trying to justify, justify. your use, but I think. Anyone that's listened to this interview, I believe you. Like, I, I, I 100 sincerely believe that you were, you were, because, I mean, you had your arm blown off and your first thought was be responsible. So, it, it's weird. It does not, it, it doesn't hold the same weight as it would. Like, you, you're, and you don't, you don't look ravaged from <laughs> heroin. I mean, I've, I, I'm going to tell a quick story and then we're going to get back to yours because it's way more important, but. Um, about a couple months ago, within the span of two or three weeks, I accidentally picked up two prostitutes in Indianapolis. Here's what happened. Uh, I was, first time I was at a gas station getting gas while I was driving for Uber and Lyft, and a uh, girl probably in her early 20s, she was cute, fine, you know, like didn't look like a prostitute. Right. And she asked me for a cigarette. So I gave her a cigarette. 
She said, can you give me a ride? I said, sure. I'm thinking, she saw the lift sign, right? She's gonna probably give me some cash. So we started driving, I go, okay, so where am I taking you? She's like, where are you trying to go? I said, well, I'm going back to work. Uh, where are you going? She goes, well, I'm just out here trying to make some money. I was like, oh yeah, me too. Uh, driving for Uber and Lyft, I still haven't figured it out. And then she goes, uh, well, what are you wanting? And I, that's when I figured it out. And I said, oh, no, I said, I'm so sorry, I don't pay for sex. And this is how nice of a person I am. I felt like I had wasted her time. Like she was a salesperson. So I gave her 10 bucks and dropped her off at a Little Caesars. And then a uh, few weeks later, I'm pull up to a stop sign. Windows are down. This girl runs up to my car and goes, can you give me a ride? It seemed like she was in a panic. So I said, yeah, of course you did. And we start driving. I go, are you okay? She goes, I'm fine. And I go, well, do you need to go to a hospital or do you want me to take your family? And she goes, uh, where are you trying to go? I go, oh, that's good. Uh, and then I go, are you just trying to make some money? And she said, yeah, what do you want? And I said, damn it. I said, I said I'm so sorry. So I gave her five bucks and dropped her off at a White Castle because I kind of felt like she had swindled me. You know, like right. the first time was a little bit on me for not catching on. Right. This time is a little bit on her for tricking me. But then actually I was like, but she definitely was like a prostitute, prostitute. She was, had been hit by, you know, she could tell she was in the game. That was a veteran move. I should have given her more money just out of respect for greatness. Like, that was a move. So anyways, okay. So now, continue. I go to a couple rehab centers, and I get kicked out uh, for, for fights. What were the fights over? Uh, one place I got into a fight with a staff member. I just didn't agree with how she was. She was too judgy for working at a treatment center. She was extremely judgmental against people who had addictions. And I was like, no. I feel like, I feel, do you feel like a lot of people who don't have addiction or don't have maybe somebody close to them dealing with addiction? They don't understand. They don't understand and they look, they do. Even people who have people who are close to them with addictions. My husband still does not understand addiction. Well, they look at, they look at it as, uh, for one, they look at it as a choice, which right. at a certain point, okay, it at the be- become- at the beginning it is, right, and then at a certain point it is not. It is a sustain right. and survive, and they look at it as you're, you know, like just stop. Right, and they don't understand that, especially with heroin. It's not as easy as just going, okay, I'm done. You know, there is well, nine physical things. to thirteen days of physical withdrawals that can get so bad people have died from them you have heart attacks you have seizures you see a baby crawl up a wall yeah you hallucinate ever i mean it it gets bad and uh you know a lot of people they get to day three or four which day five even that is the absolute worst and they just can't keep going they've got to get something in their system. And that's when you see a lot of overdoses because at that point you've gone five days. It's no longer, you don't have that tolerance that you had five days prior to that, but they'll go out and still use the same amount and they overdose. And so you see a lot of overdoses like that. But he, my husband had told me that if I got kicked out of one more rehab center, not to even worry about coming home, don't even call him. When was, I wasn't welcome. When was this? This was eight months ago. So this was Jan, no, 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 this was uh, la- the end of last year. Yes. So this was like November. 
November, December time frame, yes. Okay, and so when you got kicked out of the second one... Uh, actually, it was the third one. I got the th- kicked out. <laughs> the third one? Yes. Um, what did you do? Where did you go? Um, I originally went to Pendleton Pike in 465. Now, you're giving cross streets. You're not giving a house or... I went to the bridge. And... At Pendleton Pike and 465. So for those of you who aren't familiar with the Indianapolis area, the bridge is not a shelter. It is not a uh, woman's center. It is not a drug rehab place. It's literally it, a bridge. It's literally a bridge. It is, it, is, it is where a lot of homeless people sleep in the winter, especially because there's the, it's a big bridge and it's, there's protection from the elements. And so you made the decision to be homeless. People say I made the decision to be Well, homeless. he kind of made it for you in a way. He, he, yeah, he put he you in a position me. where you only had one decision. Right. My family had already turned their back and said no more, that they couldn't continue to do it, that I was putting my mother's sobriety in jeopardy because she's actually lost her nursing license for stealing morphine from her patients. And so I was putting her sobriety in danger by being around. I couldn't keep doing that to my son at that point he was old enough and even though he has autism he was aware of what was going on he knew what was going on he knew that you were doing heroin he knew that I was doing heroin and I couldn't keep putting my child in that position screw everyone else it was my child I was thinking of and when Josh told me not to come home because Evan my son was living with him you know at that point it was okay I can't, I can't do this to him anymore. But, and I tell you what, this, that's like when, uh, when a mother gives their child up for adoption because they want the child to have a better life. People judge that mother and say, how could she abandon her child or whatever? I think it takes almost more strength to know that you have to do what's in the best interest of your child, which may not be with you. And that's because most people wouldn't do that because they don't want to feel the guilt. It's, you know, a little bit of a selfish thing. They don't want to feel that guilt of, of not being around the child. And they don't want, you know, they don't want to miss their child. So they keep their child in a bad situation. You chose to put the child first and make sure that the child, you know, your son was okay. How, how hard of a decision was that? It was the, probably the hardest decision I've ever made in my life to... Everyone else saw it as I was turning my back on my son. Whereas to me, I was chance. trying to give him the best opportunity. Yeah, you gave him a chance. He had. Because he wasn't going to, he was not going to be better off in your care at that time. No. And I knew that just stopping, just stopping was out of the question at that point. Um, I knew I was coming to a head. I knew I was getting there. I was getting to that point. Because the amount of painkillers you were mm-hmm. on. I mean, I'd already downgraded a lot when I went to heroin. Yeah. You know, pain. But that's crazy, by the way. (laughs) You downgraded the drug use by going to heroin. Yes. And so, continue, I'm sorry. So I went to Pendleton Pike in 465 and I panhandled. So you stood? I stood on on the exit ramp holding a sign. What did the sign say? White lights for um, beer or heroin? White lights for heroin? No, uh, it said um, 
most of my signs said the same thing, but it was a homeless combat vet struggling to make ends meet, anything helps. By the way, God bless. Okay, so by the way, I love that sign because there's a guy that sits at a Walmart uh, in like the South Side area every day, and his sign says, that I fought for your freedom and I hate that so much. I'm like, don't guilt me, no. you know, but your, your sign is just that. So you letting people, and how, about how much money did you make a day? Uh, Pendleton Pike and 465, depending on the day, because every day was different, but depending on the day of the week, I walked away with anywhere between $5 um, up to, I think my best day was actually Veterans Day, and I walked away with almost $100. Okay, so that, that's a, that is a great thing for people to know is I I hate hate when people do the thing where they're like they make like thousands of dollars oh, they gosh, make more yeah. than I do I'm like no for one they don't and two it's it is it cannot be an easy because you know the perception of you when stand, you're standing there you know I how people are going to exactly, look at you and I stood it's on the easy. ramp from 7am every morning until dark every night and people don't understand. That's not and an I'd easy. I'd be lucky if I made five dollars some days. And that's the thing. People don't understand. That's not. That's not a. That's not. A lot of people call them lazy. It's not lazy. It is. It has got to be an incredibly tough decision to decide. You know what? People look down on people that do this. They look at them as though they're not equal human beings. But it's what I have to do at this moment to survive and. It's I, a tough decision. It's got to be. I actually got propositioned for sex more times than I made money out there. Or I've actually had people uh, drive by and throw bottles at me. I had someone drive by and throw a dirty diaper at me. Um, at least once or twice today, you get someone who drives by yelling out the window, you know, that you're worthless, you're a liar, um, and all you, this other stuff. And you knew that going into each day. Yes. And so, so yeah, that's like, it's like when people say that being gay is a choice. Like, no one, if people understood what gay people had to go through with the internal stuff, the fear The internal of, struggle, the struggle I had within myself of standing there for 12 hours a day and knowing what people thought of me and looked at me because everyone has a stigmatism of homeless people are all the same, you know? We're all out there for the same reason. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're all the same nasty, dirty scums of the earth. By the way, you're very clean. They don't realize the backstory of why we're out there. Yes, there are plenty of homeless people who are out there by choice. But then there are others who aren't out there by choice. Well, even if they're out there by choice, don't you think there maybe has to be some sort of mental illness involved? Because oh, yes. to make that choice, there has to be something oh, yeah. not right. I know that before I became homeless, living under a bridge, panhandling, I was that person who I literally one day went and collected applications from McDonald's and Wendy's and stuff, and I handed them out to people standing on ramps. Well, here's what people don't understand. When you go to Wendy's and McDonald's and work, you don't go in and they give you a check that day. Right. You have to usually wait at least one other pay period. So you sometimes are looking at a full month before you will first get paid. And it you you're you can't do that sometimes. If you're at zero, it is I've always said it is so fucking hard to get to even from behind. Mm-hmm. When you're at even, it's easy to get ahead. But if you get behind, it is 
is almost like drowning. The more you try, the further down you go and you, you feel like you're sinking and I was going anywhere between five to nine days in between eating because I wasn't making any money. And that's, and how many days were you, like, were you doing this? When, when, was, when, did, when did you start the panhandling? I started the panhandling um, the day I got kicked out of my last rehab center in So November. November. And then um, how long... Were you under? Were you sleeping under the bridge? Under that bridge, four sixty-five in Pendleton Pike. I only stayed for a couple months. Stayed until February. Oh um, wow! Hold on, hold on. You say, you say that as though like, it's. Well, we just went to the vacation house and just stayed for a couple of months. That, sleeping that under a bridge. That bridge. Well, that, but I'm saying sleeping under a bridge for a couple months. That, for one. What was it like going to sleep every night? Was there a lot of fear? I was always scared. I tend to do most of my sleeping um, between twilight and uh, I was averaging two to three hours of sleep at night because I would only sleep between twilight and 7 a.m. And is that, again, because of the fear? Like I was scared. You wanted like, to be alert when I, people woke up? That's why I left that bridge. How many people I were there? I had an issue with somebody else who lived... He originally started under that bridge. He had lived there for two years, and then he was squatting in a house where the lady was actually in prison for killing her husband. And so, but he thought he ruled that area. And uh, he made it extremely difficult for everybody. And he didn't like me at all, at all, because I told him how it was. And he, he... He made it hell for me. Like my, I when I left, I honestly felt my life was. Threatened. What would he do? Uh, he would beat the crap out of me. He would literally come take every dime that I would make. Um, he would. I would wake up sometimes, and he would just be standing over me, holding a machete, just staring at me. I know there's some people right now that are listening and going, well, "Why didn't you just get? You know, why didn't you just leave?" It's not that oh, easy. No. It's, oh, it's not that easy either. Because I mean, it's not like you could just. Pack up the car and go. Right. You're on your feet, right? Right. How did, so how did you actually get to the bridge from the rehab center? Um, I took the bus. Okay. And so... Um, I took the bus out. How many people were living under this bridge? Um, when I first got out there, there were seven. When I left, there were only like four of us. Everyone else had kind of disappeared into their own world. Um it being winter, a lot of people went to shelters and stuff. I started fearing for my life because of this guy. And um, actually one night I was, I'd walked down to a friend's hotel room down at 21st and Shadeland. And on my way back, I happened to look up underneath the bridge there at 70 and Shadeland. And I noticed there were a buttload of people staying there. So I walked up and woke up one of the old guys and got to talking with him. And by morning, all of my stuff had been moved the four miles from 465 in Pendleton Pike down to 21st in Shadeland. Moved all of it by hand. Oh, my God. Four miles? Myself. Walking? Yeah. And I walked from Pendleton down there, walked back to get my stuff. And this and walked is back March? To 21st, uh, February. February. Now, if you don't know, if you don't live here in Indiana... Our Februarys are brutal. <laughs> Not just one because it's extremely cold. I mean, it is the, it's almost the, like, the, the eye, or not the eye, but the, the meat, the, the peak of the cold. 
it's also uh, seasonal depression. And I imagine if you're in that situation, the depression's already there. So see, if you don't know what seasonal depression is, uh, it's up north for four months, every year, we all get sad at the same time. There's not enough sunlight, you're not getting enough vitamin, whatever it is, and so it really takes a toll on you. And I imagine if you're living under a bridge, that's gonna take even more of a toll. And you're making that walk in the cold. How many trips did you have to make to get your stuff there? Uh, I ended up having to make three trips. So that's, well, that's 24 miles. Including the first trip that I made down there without anything. Oh, so that, that's. I uh, made a trip down there. 32 miles. And I noticed everyone on my walk back. How long did it take you? Uh, I, my first, when I was walking back to Pendleton Pike in 465, the first time was midnight. By 7 a.m., I had everything over there. Oh, my goodness. And that's, well, that's the Army background, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just. It's weird, but honestly, if there was anyone who was maybe built to handle this situation, it's the someone like you. The worst part was is we had just had a horrible ice storm. It was warm enough that things started melting, but cold enough that it was still freezing out. And the shoes that I was in were not waterproof. Oh. They were actually mesh, and they had holes in them. Oh. Actually, from the, like, I had walked so much in these shoes, they had holes coming from the bottom of my shoes up into my shoe. So like the sole of my shoes, I had holes everywhere. Oh, so you're hitting, you're hitting that cold pavement and if there's snow, that snow's or going water, right up inside yes. there. And at one point, my feet were so pruned, like I'd been sitting in a bathtub and they were pure white that my shoes literally froze to my feet. And I could not sleep for days because all I was doing was screaming in pain because my feet hurt so bad. And if you're homeless, your feet are your lifeline. You don't move, you don't live. You what? don't eat, you don't do anything. And I had no blankets at the time. Uh, I had no sleeping bags. I had no way to get warm. I had no way to get dry. I had no other shoes. I had no other socks. How did you learn? Like, you, Okay, so you just said feet or the, you know, because everything else, like, how did you start learning about the survival methods and what you, you know, the, the important things and how to, like, did you, did somebody kind of show you, it's going to sound really bad with the subject. No, matter, no one showed show me, the, me the, ropes. the ropes. and No uh, one showed me the ropes. Taught I, you to dance. and I learned on my feet on the go. And then again, I, I think learned as I was going. That army instinct of you know if it wasn't for my military background and my cold weather survival training i honestly don't think i would have made it through the winter what what part of that training came in play um well my feet were a big thing and i knew no matter how bad it hurt i had to get those shoes and i had to get those socks off even if for 24 hours and get them dry i had to get my feet how'd you get them dry um well I froze the rest of my body out because I took my winter coat off and I wrapped my feet up in them. So now you're having to choose between keeping yourself warm and dry and basically the survival of your feet. Right. I had on three pairs of sweatpants, which is all I had. I had on two long sleeve shirts and a hoodie. I had no gloves. I had no hat. 
I had to take my shoes off because I had to get my feet dry. I literally would go into uh, various restaurants, like fast food places, McDonald's and stuff, and stand there as long as I could underneath their uh, blow dryer with my shoes in my hands or my feet up there trying to dry them the best I could. And I'm guessing they didn't get as dry as they should have been every night. So then you're having to go put back on wet wet socks, socks, wet wet shoes. And get cold, wet pants that are frozen to the ground at some points. My shoes were frozen to the ground at one point. I literally, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I had to pee on my shoes to get them unstuck from the ground because I had no warm anything. Maybe that's what happened with R. Kelly. Maybe that (laughs) young girl was stuck to the ground. Maybe. (laughs) And he, so, um, what was the darkest moment when you were living under either bridge? Well, I had moved down to 21st and Shadeland. And down there... And this was, was in February. February. Um, by March, April. Um, it started to warm up, thankfully. Just a little bit. But I remember laying underneath the bridge. And I hadn't made a dime in days. I hadn't eaten in days. I was beyond dope sick. And I remember laying there crying and shivering and I got beat by two of the people underneath that bridge because I was making too much noise and they couldn't sleep. And at that point, I actually started to question my existence. I started to question why I was putting myself through this when nobody cared anyways. No one in my family that I knew of was looking for me. My husband was just leaving me out there. My son refused to talk to me because everyone had convinced him that I had chosen drugs over him. And at that point, I was completely and solely alone. I had nobody watching my back. I had nobody help me getting food. I had nobody help me with anything. And what did you say you were doing that that, that they said was too loud? I was crying. Because, of course, like, I mean, I... I was crying too loud. And, and, and they couldn't sleep. How many of them was it? There were three of them. That ended up, like, one ended up just watching. He just kind of stood back and watched. He didn't do anything. The other two beat the crap out of me. Like, the next morning, I both my eyes were swollen shut. My jaw was black and blue. I had bruises from head to toe. I could barely move. I hurt so bad. Uh, and so... Did you go to a hospital? No. What did you do? I laid there. That, that's because, I mean, that's you, part your only option, right? Yeah. So what what happened next? Because now we're into, we're into February. March, How long April. were you? Un, so you were still under that bridge until April. I stayed underneath the 21st and Shadeland Bridge up until about a week ago. Oh, my God. So from, from February... Until right now, we're in July. It was like July. So five months. Sixth or seventh. Five months. That I finally got out from underneath the bridge. And what got you from underneath the bridge? So during that time, there was literally a day I was getting ready to do a shot. And at that point, I was actually using to get high. I was just trying to forget everything. I didn't care anymore. So I, my addiction had gone from just using to survive to using to forget. And this was July 6th? No, this was four months ago. Okay. 
And so right around that March, April time frame. And I'm literally getting ready to do a shot. And it's a big shot. And I'm looking down at my syringe, which is full, ready to go. I have my tourniquet on my arm. I have my spot picked out. You know, me being the medic, I've already taken hand sanitizer and sanitized the area. <laughs> Not too many heroin dealers do, <laughs> users do that one, but... You're a very medic. responsible heroin dealer or heroin user. Yeah, but medic and me, got to sterilize the area. But um, I'm literally looking down at my syringe and I look up and there's traffic stopped right in front of me. And there's a car, a family, right in front of me. Dad is driving, mom's in the passenger seat, there's a little girl in the back seat, and there's a little boy in the back seat. All four of them are literally staring at me. And you can, they can see that I have a syringe in my hand. You know, they can see I have a tourniquet on my arm. And they're all just staring at me. And it kind of dawned on me then, I literally go, what the fuck am I doing? I'm like, what am I doing to myself? What am I doing to everyone else? What am I, just like, what am I doing? And I literally, I don't know what possessed me to do this. I took my shot, which was worth $60, which is a lot, and squirted it on the ground. I took my needle, I snapped it off of my syringe, I pulled my plunger out, I snapped it into three, and I took my pocket knife, and I literally cut my needle in three. Well, hang on. When you say plunger, what is that? The plunger that goes inside. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. The needle. And so you just decided you were done? I took what I had left of my bag of heroin, and I also had a small bag of meth that, again, I don't, I never used meth again. I always had it on me because it was easy to sell in the area, and that's half the time would pay for my heroin. But um, I just dumped it out on the ground and I laid there and I laid there and for the next 12 days nobody came to my rescue nobody came to help me nobody came to check on me I was literally laying in my own piss shit and vomit from withdrawals hallucinating bad what were you seeing I don't even remember. I just know that... Uh, you remember the my, feeling of hallucinating. I remember the feeling of hallucinating. I remember at one point of me even telling myself, this isn't real. I know it's not real, but I'm living it. What the fuck? And I remember my bridge mates, is what I call them, my bridge mates, my roommates, um, told me about things that I would yell out and stuff. And at one point, um, one of the other veterans that lived under the bridge, she came and apparently sat with me um, for an entire 24 hours because I was hallucinating bad from Iraq. And um, she'd been, you know, she, she'd been through it all. She understood, so she sat with me. She's probably the only one. Now, this girl, we were talking actually earlier today. I could sit there and badmouth this woman till I'm blue in the face, and she would me. But at the end of the day, if she needs me or I needed her, well, we're going to be there for each other. We're sisters. We always will be. Can't stand her half the time, but I love her to death. And I honestly think it was her because I got to the worst point of withdrawals and I was begging someone to just give me a small shot. And it was her that said, no, you don't need it. Now, she is the biggest heroin user that I have ever known. She overdoses at least five times a week. 
And uh, I was talking to her today and I honestly think I have her convinced to get away from there, to get away from her husband who is the one feeding her her drugs and to try to get her life back as well. But she was the one who got me through the withdrawals. Now, for the last four months, I've been clean. I have not used anything. I've smoked weed every now and then, but I'm sorry, weed's not a drug. Indiana just needs to make it legal already. Uh, but uh, I've been clean. How? The so- hardest thing in the world is to sit there under a bridge with 12 other people and every person, every person under that bridge is using one kind of drug or more. And to sit there every day, day in and day out, and watch people be high and feeling good, and you're sitting there sober. Hardest thing in the world. But I also knew that if I could sit there and do that, that once I finally got my chance to get back on my feet, I knew that I was going to be able to be clean. Because one, I didn't go through a withdrawal center that, you know, medicates me and knocks me out for a week. And so I don't feel the withdrawals. I didn't go and get on Suboxone or Methadone, which I'm sorry to me, I understand people need it and I will never judge someone, especially who's, you know, a situation I've been in. But to me, for me to take Suboxone or Methadone, it's just a Band-Aid on an amputation. I want, because I went through the heartache of, or I went through the hardship of, the physical withdrawals from going cold turkey. I now know every single time I see a syringe and if I'm having a bad day, cause I have plenty of them where I think for a split second about using, I remember those withdrawals and I go, hell no. I ain't going down that road again because I don't ever want to be there again. So let me ask you this, what was the difference between living there and doing heroin every day and doing it especially towards the end there for to get high as opposed to your holistic alternative medicine to living there sober? There's a big difference. Um, But I started to notice the way people treated everyone over there. Um, I started to notice the different business owners and the way they treated the hotels, the way they treated um, us homeless people. And it started with was soon everyone was nice to me over there and then they saw me hanging out with the homeless people and they put two and two together and everyone started treating me like crap and for no reason you'd get kicked out of you know burger king or mcdonald's for no reason just for sitting in there uh for five minutes you could not look or say a thing to another customer and you just walked in for five minutes to warm up and you get kicked out um gas station employ or gas station owners there's only one gas station over there that even allow us to come in the door. And still, man, as soon as you walk in the door, you have two employees on you because they swear up and down. Everyone, all homeless people are the same, and they're going to steal, you know? And Which is crazy because they make thousands of dollars on the oh, side no, of the highway. Right? So, so it's, it's the stigmatism. And I actually got into, once I got clean and sober and I saw actually saw this, I uh, actually got into some arguments with a few managers 
And I was actually told by quite a few managers, there's no way you're homeless. People who didn't know me, who I just talked to randomly on the road, there's like, there's no way you're homeless. I'm like, yeah, I live right there. All my crap's right there. I live under a bridge. I'm homeless. You don't fit the bill to be homeless. What exactly is the bill to be homeless? I can tell you exactly what I mean. So you are, you are very pretty. You have amazing teeth. You, like I said, your face does not look ravaged from heroin. You're, uh, when people think of homeless people and drug addicts, they think of toothless guy with a big beard, uh, you know, and. Which every guy out there is that. Yeah. So that's what, that's what they think of. And they, and they like Smurfette. And I think every female who is homeless out there is going to turn tricks. Yeah. And. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I have way too much respect for myself. I'm not going down that Was route. Was there ever any point where, like, maybe you, like, that, where you were close to, to turning to that? I was close just before I decided to get clean. Um, actually, a couple of days prior to that, I had made a comment to one of the guys out there. I'm like, as many times as I get propositioned, man, I could clean up out here. I could make some decent money. Hell, I could probably make enough money to stay in a hotel room every night. And I was like, at this point, I'm about to say screw it because standing on the median, I'm lucky if I get enough money to eat off the dollar menu every couple of days, let alone, you know, feed a drug habit. And so I I had no clothes. I had nothing. And I honestly am like, you know what? You know, I got guys offering me $20 for five minutes of my time. And I can't make $20 in a week, period. And so I honestly, I did, I did think about it. But then I also stopped myself and I was like, one, I have way too much respect for myself. If the next female wants to do it, that's on her. I will, again, never judge her for doing it. Because when you're out there and people don't realize it until they're homeless and they're in that situation, you do what you have to do to survive. You it's know? human nature. Yeah, you're going to do what you have to do. And so if they feel that that's the only way they can survive, then, you know, that's on them. Me, I took the harder route and I lost 122 pounds in a seven-month period because I didn't have the money to eat. And that includes me being clean for the last four months where, you know, I wasn't having to worry about paying for my drugs every day. You know, all my money went solely to everything but. And I still would find myself not eating. Um, I was lucky if I got a shower once a week or every couple of weeks. Um, let me tell you, that dry shampoo by Suave, man, that stuff is great right about now. <laughs> I lived off of that stuff. But I was also that homeless person that every morning before, like, um, Burger King opens up at six o'clock and I was really good. I I was good with the morning shift and the manager didn't come in who didn't like any of us until seven. So as long as you got over there at six o'clock, I would go over there. I would order myself a coffee because it was 55 cents. I would plug in um, a cell phone if I had it. Most of the time I didn't have a working cell phone. And if I did have a working cell phone, it only worked when I was connected to Wi-Fi because I use the text now app. 
but um, I would plug in anything I had that needed a charge. Or if I'd gone over there and someone else under the bridge needed a charge, I would take their stuff over there. And every morning I'd go over to make, or I'd go over to Burger King, go into the bathroom, I'd wash my face, I'd brush my teeth, I'd put my hair up, you know. There's a difference between being homeless and being nasty. The two don't have to go hand in hand. Well, I think there's also a difference between being homeless and being, I don't want to say optimistic, but... the thing is, I still cared about myself. You hadn't given up. Right, I hadn't given up yet. I still cared about myself. I still cared about my appearance. But let me tell you, the hardest thing in the world is going out onto the median to panhandle the day after you've had a shower and you're clean and you're in clean clothes because now it's all gone everyone's looking at you like uh there's no oh, way oh my god homeless. yeah yeah that's yeah and it's like and that's what i said me. earlier right when you said you know, i said you look clean like you yeah. don't look dirty no like i i ensured that one way or another i got a shower even if it was quote quote a horse bath and the uh, the Circle K bathroom at three o'clock in the morning, you know, with a washcloth, a bar of soap, standing there washing up in the sink. I was making sure I stayed clean. That was just my nature. Honestly, as, co- as a comedian, I have taken plenty of a sink shower, even down to where uh, you just wet wipes, just clean up the smelly of- places. I, I, anyone who needed to clean themselves up always came to me because they always knew I had at least one, if not more, big packages of baby wipes. Baby powder, foot powder. I had more toiletries homeless than I did when I lived at home. (laughs) Which is even funnier because I actually had more pairs of shoes at the end of being homeless than I've ever owned in my life. (laughs) Okay, now you say the end of being homeless. When when was the end? Uh, Six days, well, seven days ago today. Okay, and what happened? Um, I had called my husband. He was at work, and I called him at about 11 o'clock at night to ask him if he had some of my paperwork for the military. And he goes, where are you? And I said, where I usually am. He's like, no, seriously, where exactly are you? I was like, well, right this second, my friend got a hotel room for the night, so I'm staying with her. And he was like, where? I told him where. He goes, I'm coming to get you. You're coming home. I go, what? Wait, huh? Click. 35 minutes later, there's a knock on the door and he's right there. And I reluctantly, I left all my stuff. I was like, they're gonna need it more than I do. You know, at that point I had acquired quite a bit. I had sleeping bags, I had a cot, I had a tent. I mean, I had acquired quite a bit. And um, I was like, they're gonna need it more than I do. Keep it, you know, I'm going home. And it's definitely been a weird adjustment this period because usually I'm the one that has one foot out the door. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I'm waiting to run as soon as things seem to get hard. But I decided one, this is also the first time since we've been married that I'm 100% clean. Uh, I don't even take Tylenol anymore. Like I am 100% clean. And so it's the first time that I'm seeing things from a different perspective. And This time, he's the one that has one foot out the door, waiting for the other shoe to drop, just waiting for me to run again. And And so he's being very guarded. And me, I'm the one being open and, you know, 
letting them in inside my walls, and I never let anyone in my walls. And you're so what are you seeing out of them that's showing you he's got to fit out the door? So it's completely different. Um, before, I would be laying there and I would make the comment that I'm hungry or I'm craving this, and he would immediately jump up and go get it. Now, he doesn't care if I'm sitting there on the floor throwing up for some reason. I get up and get my own stuff. Um, he has worked the last 12 days straight, 12 plus hours a day. And so he's pretty much kind of just treating you with disdain. It, I honestly, I see him actually awake time. I see him maybe two hours a day. The rest of the time he's either asleep or he's at work. And when we are at home, we've gotten... Not last night, but the night before. I mean, we got into a nice, heated fight. And it came down to, he said that I was, I chose to stay on the street. I knew where the home was. I didn't come home. Yada, yada, yada. Now, keep in mind. Clearly, he forgot that he told me not to come home. But now, keep in mind, this is, this is the home, like, it's, again, it's not like you can just go, okay, I don't want to be homeless anymore. Let me go home and drive there. It's it's a... There's eight, no bus line out here. Yeah, it's a four-mile trip. No, it's a five-and-a-half-hour walk from where I was at. I know. I was about to walk it this morning until you came and picked me up. I was about to walk it. It's a five-and-a-half-hour trip from exactly where I was to my house. And that's a straight walk. That's not taking a break. That's... It was you know, a 25-minute drive. Yeah, 27 27 minute drive and so where do you where do you think you go from here I want to go up my biggest thing is being out there on the street I met more homeless veterans than I have ever even imagined I mean I knew a lot of veterans were homeless, but until I was a homeless veteran out there and I kind of became part of the circle, I did not realize how many. And what's even worse is I didn't realize on average how many years they'd been out there. Um, there's one guy who is a homeless veteran. He's been out there nine years now. And he has tried, I don't know how many times, to get funding from HVAV or the VA or somebody. And when you're coming from a house, going to another house, HVAV and the VA, they're quick to help you. But when you're actually homeless on the streets, they send out their VA reps to collect your information, but then they never come back. Well, I don't know how many times they came out and said, oh, we'll be back Monday morning to pick you up, to take you to the VA, to get you know a copy of this paperwork so we can get this going, we can get this going, we can get you into subsidized housing, we can get you on emergency food stamps, stuff like that. And then they never show up. And when you call, they never answer. You think it's because they look at people who are already in a house as less of a risk for their success stories so that they yep. can look better? And they look at people who are actually homeless as, well, they're, pro they're probably going to fuck it up again and we don't want to keep having these. That's exactly how they look at it. That's exactly how they look at it. Because literally, this last time I talked to a VA rep, two ladies came out and... They came over because someone pointed me out, and they came over, talked to me. They took my information. They're like, because of, you know, um, your honorable discharge, your um, 
your your uh, your entire military career and everything. We can get you in um, to emergency. It's like emergency section eight through the VA. She's like, I know that we can get you into that. If not, we can get you into one of the many shelters that we have that are for homeless veterans. Um, they have shelters for just homeless veterans and shelters for homeless veterans who have addictions. And they're like, we can get you into one of those tomorrow. And they're like, we can get you emergency food stamps. We can get your insurance going. We can get you an address. So you can have all this stuff sent to it. We can get your paperwork. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. As they were leaving, because they had parked a little substantial, they'd parked a little ways away. As they were leaving, I had taken the back route kind of up and they couldn't see me because of the tree line. But I was pretty much walking parallel next to them. And I was walking with another vet. And he was like, Man, they're going to stick you up. They ain't going to come back. And I was like, I don't know. They seem kind of, you know, genuine and stuff. And while I was walking, the conversation I heard those two ladies having about how they hated their job, about how they had to come out and talk to us homeless veterans like uh, they still owed us something. She was like, and the lady was like, I'm not even 100% sure I'm going to turn in this application. And the other lady was like, it's not the first one I haven't turned in. And it should, just listening to that conversation, my mouth dropped. I literally recorded it on my cell phone. The entire conversation. It was like a 10-minute conversation these ladies had about how disgusting we were, about how we were all the same and everything else. And it just downright disgusted me. Because here I am, someone who is actually from a social class, you know, I have, when I'm at home, I have everything. I'm, you know, I have a social class that isn't homeless. And people don't look at the backstory to everything. They don't look at where they came from. They just look at where they are right then. And to me, that was just, it hit a nerve. And the fact that, you know, seven days ago I was living under a bridge and now I'm back in my home, regardless if things work out with my husband or not, I still want to hopefully be able to say eventually that I can start a nonprofit organization or something along those lines to give homeless veterans, especially ones with addiction or ones who have been out there for years, the resources they need so that they have a second chance at life. Because it's amazing how many people just turn their back or they see the sign homeless veteran and they're like, oh, you choose to be out here. And it's just like, you don't, half of the homeless veterans these days don't even put that they're homeless veterans on their signs. They're out there, it just says homeless. They won't put the fact that they're veterans out there because we seem to get looked on and picked on and downgraded twice as hard as the next person who's just homeless and was never a vet. But the fact that every vet still struggles with their demons, you know, and we all struggle and we deal with things in our own way, but it's just, it, to me, it's just, it's, it's wrong that we can fight for our country and when we get home, everyone turns our back. Now, granted, we are in a hell of a lot of better place than Vietnam when everyone came back from Vietnam. They didn't even know what PTSD was. You know, those guys didn't even have a welcome home. They just came home and they were treated like absolute shit. 
and it's only because of this war that we really understand what PTSD is and what people go through and there's more resources out there. But I met so many Vietnam vets that are homeless and out there because they've been out there for so long now, they don't realize that there's help. And the ones that do realize there's help, they don't know how to turn to it. They don't know, you know, we've been shunned for so long that, and in the military, you're taught how to, you know, stand on your own. You don't ask for help. And for us to all be thrown back into society and expect us to reach out and ask for help when we need it. Yeah, you're, you're I, trained not to. Yeah, I, as a soldier and, you know, I saw a shirt the other day that says I took an oath to defend um, my country against both foreign and domestic and nobody has relieved me of my oath. Well, that's the same as I see it. Just because I'm no longer in the military doesn't mean that, you know, my oath that I took isn't still holding strong. And because of that, I think, well, I'm not going to go to some mental health place and say, hey, I'm depressed. I want to kill myself. Help me. You know, that's not who we are. We are taught to deal with that kind of stuff on our own. And in a lot of cases, unfortunately, I know I know more veterans who have turned to drugs and or have been homeless for some point of their life, even if it's just for a couple of months. I can't say that there are more than a dozen veterans that I know, and I know hundreds, that haven't gone through one or the other since they've gotten out of the military. And to me, that's unacceptable. And I guess it's the medic in me, it's the compassionate heart in me, I don't know. But I want to be able to, right now, yes, I need to focus on me and getting back on my own two feet and getting, you know, back on track. But in a year from now, I would love to be able to give another veteran the chance that I got today, you know, that I got seven days ago. And there are more veterans out there who have no family or their family has completely turned their backs on them that they're not going to get the opportunity that I have, that their husband is going to come and say, you don't have a choice, you're coming home. You know, their mom, dad, their own kids aren't going to come and pull, you know, literally reach out to them and say, you don't have to ask for help, I'm here. That's what I want to eventually be able to do is I want to be able to walk up to a veteran, a homeless veteran, a veteran addicted and be like, it's okay. I understand. I have literally been here. I have been addicted. I've been homeless. I've lived under a bridge and it's not the end because I don't know how you talk to some of these guys and to them, it's the end for them, you know? This is the end game. They're, they have no plans past being homeless. They plan on dying on the streets because they've been out there for so long. And there is no real helping hand out there, you know, and I want to change that. This is an amazing story. Please, please share this episode. Please go to the PayPal. I don't have my card in front of me. Give your email. Uh, it's 
Miss M S E L Maitland M A I T L E N at gmail.com. That was M S E L M A I T L E N L E N at gmail.com. And again, share this episode. Get the word out. This story is incredible. Aaron, that's the most amazing story I've ever heard. And I'm betting on you because everything you've already gone through, I feel like this doesn't even compare. So enjoy uh, Daniel Sloss and Kai Humphreys' battle to see which of those two has become more Americanized. Um, Again, Aaron, thank you so much for your time. Thank you.